Have you ever thought at some point in your life, if, if God would just tell you what, you what He wanted you to do, then you would do it. Just tell me what you want me to do. Just lay it out clearly, explicitly, and then I will do it. Well, I've had enough instructions throughout my life to know that's not the way it works. My mom gave me a lot of clear instructions, told me a lot of things to do, and yet, what do we find ourselves not doing those things? So we know it wouldn't work out quite that way. Now you think about a, a children's puzzle, perhaps, and how uh, you have the, the, the board, the layout, and there are outlines of where the puzzle pieces are supposed to go. So you just take the puzzle pieces, you put them right, it shows you where to go. You just overlay them onto the outline. But then as a kid gets older, you have more complex, more difficult puzzles. Now if a child only always had one of those younger child's puzzles, they would never grow in in their understanding of how to put things together. They would never have to struggle and wrestle with how, how to put these pieces together so that it matches the whole part of the picture. There's value in working through complexities of life. And so as we think about God and His will for us, we have to recognize if, if He always simply gave us the instructions, not only would we disobey them, but we would never grow in our understanding and maturity. God uses sometimes the ambiguities in life, the difficulties of working through certain problems and challenges, the complexities of life to grow us and to mature us in Christ. And so as we look at uh, many of the scriptures, as we look at many of the letters of Paul, we see uh, Paul, for instance, not giving necessarily straightforward answers all the time. As we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we see that there are nuances in Paul's arguments, that there are still complexities and ambiguities. Now, certainly there are sometimes straightforward commands. He was pretty straightforward about the fact that this church should not tolerate the man who is in sin, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There are areas where there is straightforward instruction. And yet we have to recognize throughout our lives, throughout the circumstances we face, there are complexities that we must wrestle through, that we must work through. And it's through the working through of these problems, applying biblical wisdom to them, to our circumstances, walking through these challenges in community with one another, it's through these things that God grows us and matures us, sanctifies us by His Word and by His Spirit. So consider that as we look at 1 Corinthians 8, and we see these complexities, these challenges, and noticing how Paul wisely Uh, addresses them as a shepherd. Look at our text together. 1 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 13. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. However, not all men have this knowledge." But some, being accustomed to the idol until now, 
eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither for the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. May God add his blessing to the reading and preaching of his word. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we pray that you would be glorified uh, in its preaching, that Christ would be exalted, and that we, your people, would be uh, convicted, broken over our sins, and renewed and refreshed by the gospel. We pray that you would work in us by the power of your Spirit to mature us in this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you could give one main theme to this chapter, I think it would be summed up in the phrase, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Prideful knowledge puffs up a person while destroying his brothers and sisters, but love builds everyone up. It seems that Paul states this general principle of his teaching in verses 1 through 3, and then he applies it to the particular situation that was present in the Corinthian church, verses 4 through 13. So in verses 4 through 6, he affirms the stronger brothers' right theology about God and about idols. But in verses 7 through 12, he rebukes their practice toward their brothers and sisters who didn't share this knowledge. In verse 13, Paul shows what knowledge looks like practically when it is accompanied by love for Christian brothers and sisters. So Paul's aim here is that the Corinthian Christians would change their behavior toward one another. They're not acting properly toward one another. They are not thinking uh, about one another in love. The things that they're pursuing, the things that they are prizing, led them to actually bring harm to one another to damage one another. So I want us to consider our actions toward one another. What is is motivating our behavior? Is Is it knowledge or is it love? How are we considering our brothers and sisters in Christ? And I want us to consider three actions from this passage which will bring glory to God and build up one another in the church. So first... Let us pursue love rather than knowledge as that which is ultimate. Pursue love as that which is ultimate. Now, that last phrase, as ultimate, is important here. It's a good thing to pursue knowledge. We would all agree with that. But not as that which is the ultimate thing. Not as that which drives us in everything that we do. Instead, we ought to pursue love as our highest aim. The aim of our faith is not knowledge, but love. Love for God and one another. 
The first words of verse 1 remind us that Paul is addressing these questions that the Corinthians have put to him. So remember in the last chapter we uh, examined another question that was put to him about uh, marriage and about sexual relationships. And now he's addressing this question that they've brought to him about idols, about food which has been offered to idols. Uh, Feasts at temples in the Corinthian uh, city were central to the life of the culture. So for wealthy Corinthians, it would have been uh, an everyday and every week occurrence that they would, they would partake in, in this, uh, some sort of sacrificial meal in a temple. And, and you might imagine some of the wealthy uh, Christians in Corinth feeling the pressure of this. You know, you imagine you're, you're, you're a part of a business. And so you have this kind of union within uh, that field of business and you all relate to one another. You have your business contacts and you, you receive an invitation to a gathering for your business and your contacts. And it is in honor of a particular God. It's in a particular temple. And so you would receive this invitation and you would go to this temple and have this meal. Uh, it's, it's where you would uh, do business. It's where you would talk about business. And so it would be a, a regular occurrence. How could you um, how could you continue to do this and yet remain a faithful Christian? You might think of these places as similar to restaurants, only they were connected to a particular God and the worship of a particular idol. So the theological and ethical questions they were asking had to do with this. What are the boundaries regarding this? Is this an okay practice? Is it allowable to even eat food that has been offered or sacrificed to a God. And this last question would be particularly important to anyone who bought their meat in the market. You wouldn't know for sure whether or not it had previously been sacrificed and offered up and dedicated to some God. Could you eat this food? Could you join others in the temple feasts? And the Corinthian Christians came down on two sides of this. There was the one side that said, all of these practices are permissible. Remember, a common theme for these, some of these Christians were, we're no longer under the law. We're under grace. It's permissible. Everything is allowed. They knew that there's only one God and that the, the, these other so-called gods are no gods, gods at all. So why not participate? And yet there were other Christians who thought that having anything to do with this meat was wrong. Anything to do with any of these practices would be completely off limits. We will not participate in any way. Well, the, the stronger brothers, the so-called stronger brothers, justify their practices by saying, we all have knowledge concerning these things. That's what Paul is doing there in verse 1. He's quoting their saying, we've seen this several times, we, we have knowledge about these things. And therefore, we can eat in the temples. We can eat meat offered to idols. We, we know that these are not real gods. But Paul rebukes them with this phrase, knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. The ESV says, this knowledge, this so-called knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Notice these contrasting metaphors. They're both outward and upward. One puffs up and the other builds up. Now, when Paul says knowledge makes arrogant or knowledge puffs up, he isn't rejecting knowledge 
per se, but he's rejecting a particular kind of knowledge that the Corinthians are bragging about. They're pursuing knowledge as an end in and of itself. The aim of the Corinthians is to be puffed up in pride at how much they know. They thought the more they knew, the more spiritually mature they were. Our men are reading a book uh, by James Smith called You Are What You Love. And he, he gives this image several times already just in the first few chapters that we often think of ourselves, humans, as brains on a stick. You know, it's just all about information and what information we hold in our heads. We act as though our sanctification, he says, is by information transfer. Like if we could just somehow download all the theological information we needed to know into our brains, then we would be spiritually mature. We would be more spiritual than everyone else. And that's kind of what we're saying when we say, God, if you would just tell me what to do, I would do it. As, as if, we, if we had enough knowledge, then we could really be spiritually mature. And this is our tendency to take good things. So knowledge is a good thing to take good things and then to place our confidence in those things. This is what the Corinthians were doing with knowledge. To find our self-worth and our, our value in these things ultimately and then to pride ourselves in them in some way to have pride in some aspect of ourselves and begin to think that this makes us better than others, more spiritual than others. Well, what is that something for you that really gives you pride? That really makes you feel like, at least in your weaker moments, that you are spiritually better than other people? It's probably, it has to do with a knowledge of some sort. Maybe not a knowledge of theology, that could be the case. But maybe in some other area of your life where you think it, it, it puffs you up, it builds you up to a higher plane than everyone else. Well, I remember as a boy having to occasionally pump up the tires in my bike. And I remember one time my tire was flat. We would be out every day riding bikes. And so I got the, the pump and started pumping that tire up. And I kept pumping it up more and more, and it didn't look like anything was happening. So I just kept pumping it up. And then I was trying to figure out what was going on. So I went around and looked at the tire, got down low, and was looking at the tire. And a little bubble appeared on the tire. I was like, hmm, what is that? And the bubble kept growing and growing. And eventually it popped right in my face. I thought I was going to go blind for a minute there. It popped in my face because I just was filling it with so much air. And when we puff ourselves up in pride because of our knowledge or any other thing, we end up doing great harm to ourselves and to other people. Paul's message isn't just that knowledge puffs up, it's that it does damage to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Your pride is damaging other people. And this is what pride does. This is what self-centeredness does. It seeks the needs of of the one to the harm of all the others. Think about this in, in your own life. Think about this in your family life. How, how has your pride affected negatively your spouse, your sons and your daughters, your children? How has your pride brought harm to your parents? It damages relationships. 
Because it's only seeking the good of the individual, not the good of others. How might your pride about your knowledge or something else be damaging those you love in the church? Now, in contrast to this, Paul says the right attitude concerning knowledge is humility. So knowledge and humility are like lifelong friends, and you never want to separate them. You never want them to drift apart. In verse 2, Paul says, If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. In other words, it's the, these are those who think they know everything, that haven't even begun to learn what knowledge is. This is the first-year student who corrects the professor. It's the one who read an article, and now she thinks she is an expert on all things about that field. Now, in a sense, this goes back to Paul's discussion earlier in this letter about the difference between worldly knowledge and godly knowledge, worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. Worldly wisdom expresses itself in pride and in honor and in glory, in being recognized for its genius. But how does godly wisdom express itself? Godly wisdom finds its center where? In the cross of Jesus Christ. The opposite of what the world sees as pride and glory and honor. The cross in the world's eye is humiliation and shame. And dishonor. And this is where godly wisdom is centered. Worldly wisdom is characterized by pride, but godly wisdom, the cross of Christ, is characterized by love. So John Calvin says the beginning of all true knowledge is an acquaintance with God which produces humility and submission. Nay, more, it prostrates us entirely instead of elating us. But where pride is, there is ignorance of God. Think about that. Where pride is present in your life, it reveals an ignorance of the knowledge of God. The Proverbs teach us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. All knowledge and wisdom begins by a recognition of who God is and a submission to Him. And if you have pride then it's a sign that you haven't yet reckoned with our God who is holy, holy, holy. When the prophet Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, he was brought down in humility. When Peter recognized Jesus as the Lord at the catch of the great fish, he fell down on his knees because he recognized This is the Lord, and he fell down in humility, in humble worship. And this is true knowledge, brothers and sisters. This is the knowledge which doesn't puff up, but rather brings us to our knees to worship our great God. But look at the second part of the sentence. Knowledge makes arrogant, puffs up, but love edifies. Love builds up. You see the contrast here. Knowledge puffs up the individual as though he's more spiritual or more important than others. But love is the thing that actually builds him up and builds the other people around him up. We've seen these themes of building already in this letter. In chapter 3, you remember Paul says that he, as a master builder, by the grace of God, laid the foundation of this building 
and others are building upon it. This foundation is Christ. And Paul says each one must be careful how he builds. He must build with imperishable materials. And then in chapter 3, verse 17, he says, If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. And this prideful knowledge is not what is needed to build this structure. Instead, again, as Calvin notes, true knowledge must be seasoned with love. Love will keep my knowledge in check. Love is the release valve that keeps you from being inflated in pride with your knowledge. Love keeps knowledge from being just about me and makes it about us, everyone else. Love considers the needs of others rather than merely my own. Love builds up. If anyone loves God, Paul says, he is known by him. We might expect Paul to say that if anyone loves God, this person has true knowledge. But instead, he's teaching that what ultimately matters is not the amount of knowledge that you have, not how much you know, but that you are known by God. And the fact that you love God is evidence that you are known by God. Now, God knows everyone in a sense. Right? We know that God knows all things. He is omniscient. But this is referring to a more intimate and personal knowledge. This is the knowledge of relationship. Someone asks, do you know uh, this person or that? Do you know John Smith? And you say, well, I don't really know him personally. We're Facebook friends, but I don't really know who he is. I don't really know him relationally. But really to know someone means you have a relationship with them. You, you have an intimacy, a, re, a close relationship to them. And yet, even this doesn't encompass what it means to be known by God. To be known by God means that He knows you in love. It means that you have a relationship with God, and it is a relationship in which God looks upon you with favor. Paul says in Galatians 4, 8 and 9, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn your back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? And in Romans eight twenty nine, we read, Those whom God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. This is no mere informational knowledge that God has of us. It is a knowledge, a knowing before the foundation of the world. Nor is it simply a relational knowledge. It is a fatherly knowledge. To be known by God is to be His child and for Him to be your father. So a few questions come to our minds as we consider how we might apply these things to our own lives. First, have you considered the superior value of love to that of knowledge? And which are you pursuing as that which is ultimate? Or what else are you pursuing as ultimate rather than love for God and your brothers and sisters in Christ? Consider your pursuits in everyday life. The things that you give value to, the things that you really give your energy to, the things that take up the, the bulk of your time or, or those periods of free time where you are able to spend your time on what you want to spend your time on. What gobbles up all that time? What gobbles up all that energy? What are you pursuing? 
in your life, when we pursue something other than love as the ultimate aim of our faith, we can be sure that we are harming someone else, both ourselves and those around us. But second, the question you must ask yourselves is this, do I love God? Do you love God? You know that He exists. How often do you ask yourselves, do I love God? Are my affections turned toward Him? Do I love God merely for the things that He can do for me? For the protection He can give to me and my family? Do I love God merely for the gifts that He gives me? For the, this world that He lets me enjoy? Or do I love Him because of His great character? Because of who He is? Because of His great works? Because He is worthy to be loved and adored? God is worthy of love simply because He is God. Occasionally, test your love for God in this. Test your love for God against your other loves and consider how does He compare in my affections. In these first few verses, Paul shows why we must pursue love rather than knowledge for knowledge's sake. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. But notice in the next few verses, 4 through 7, we are called to prize the truth. Now, Paul doesn't ignore what the truth of the matter is. In fact, he actually affirms what some of the Corinthians know about God and idols. And, he does, and by this, he leads us to prize the truth. He doesn't ignore the truth. You don't pursue knowledge as though it were the ultimate thing, but prize the truth of the Word of God. So Paul here affirms that there are no such thing as idols. There were no such thing as these false gods. There's only one God. Paul echoes the great teaching of the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's no God in all the world except for this one true God. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. This is an exclusive claim that there is only one God and He is the creator of all and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now he admits that other people worship these so-called gods, that others have so-called lords, but they're really nothing and we worship and live for God alone. And of course, we can't bypass this passage without recognizing that Paul specifies this one God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, by whom all things are and we exist through him. Paul equates the Lord Jesus Christ with this one true God through whom all things exist. And don't be thrown off by the fact he doesn't mention the Spirit. In this particular passage, he's mentioned him several times throughout this letter already. This is the triune God we worship, and He alone is God. Paul says it's through the Lord Jesus Christ that we have our existence. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and therefore we only have life in ourselves as we come to the Father through Him. We live for the glory of God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. For it is because of Christ that anyone can call God Father. Jesus was forsaken by the Father when He died on the cross for us so that we could be adopted into His family. Though the Son is one with the Father 
and truly has all knowledge, consider what Christ did in his life. He didn't use his knowledge in order to be puffed up, though he could have. Instead, he was motivated and moved by love throughout his life. Love ushered him down in humility until he was born as a baby in the humble town of Bethlehem. Love drove him to his knees as he washed his disciples' feet. Love compelled him to carry the cross upon his shoulders. And love lifted him up to a humility that none of us could have ever known as he died on the cross for our sins, as he bore the wrath of God for us. Come to him in repentance and faith and you will have life. We exist through him. You will exist through him. The spirit will come and make his home with you and you will be welcomed into God's family. You will be called his child and he will be your father. And it's all by grace through the work of Christ, through his self-giving love, through his humility for our sake. And this, friends, is the truth and we must prize it. Prize the truth of who God is. Enjoy the pursuit of truth. Enjoy your pursuit of knowing and enjoying God more. But as you grow in knowledge and understanding the truth, don't neglect love for your brothers and sisters. You know what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. I could know all the mysteries of knowledge. Have all knowledge. And I could have all faith so as to remove mountains. But if I have not love, I am nothing. Zero. And this is what the Corinthians were guilty of doing. Instead, they should have been loving one another. They should have been protecting one another. Now notice in this discussion of weaker and stronger brothers, there is a role for teaching the weaker brothers and sisters more fully in the word. Paul isn't hesitant to teach the weaker brothers in verses 4 through 6. So notice he's addressing the stronger brothers in this situation, but the weaker brothers would have been present during the reading of this letter. They would have heard this. They would have heard Paul's teaching that they were lacking in understanding concerning these things. But I think that's part of Paul's point. The way to give this instruction is not by flaunting your liberty, Corinthians. You make the brothers stronger by limiting your freedoms in love for them. And then at the appropriate time, knowledge can be informed more fully. We must pursue love as our ultimate aim and prize the truth. We must be informed by the truth. We must be devoted to the truth. And ultimately, we must be conformed to the truth. Like a die-cast object, our hearts being melted by humility and the knowledge of God, are poured into the mold of God's word. He conforms us to the image of Christ. In your prizing of the truth, in your growing in knowledge, in your pursuit of godly wisdom, in your knowledge of theology, you have to consider this. Are you being conformed by God's word? Are you merely receiving more information? We must not merely be informed by God's word, by his truth. We must be conformed to the truth. We must let it shape us, change us into the likeness of Christ. Let's consider our last heading. We must pursue love. We must prize the truth. And finally, our third action is we have to protect our brothers and sisters in Christ. We should protect one another. 
This is what Paul desires for these stronger brothers to take responsibility for their weaker brothers. Paul didn't rebuke the Corinthians for their knowledge, but he did rebuke them for their pride and for the, the way they were behaving. He rebuked them for their practices, which had the unfortunate effect of destroying their brothers and sisters. See this in verses 17 to 13. Uh, 7 to 13. Paul applies these general truths of verses 1 through 6 to the situation concerning meat offered to idols. See, there were some within the church who didn't have the understanding of the so-called stronger brothers. Before they were Christians, they had offered meat to idols. They had worshipped idols. They were guilty of idolatry. They would have been actively involved in the feasts of idolatry and temple worship. And they had a hard time shaking this idea that by eating the meat, they weren't somehow still involved in idol worship. They couldn't, they couldn't get rid of this. You can imagine a man in, in West Africa who daily offers sacrifices of chickens and goats to his ancestors. And imagine him becoming a Christian and and having to put all of that away. He lays that down and says, that is idol worship. I will have nothing to do with it ever again. And you can imagine the tension he might would feel if he received a gift of meat, of chicken that had been sacrificed to those very gods the day before. How he would have a hard time shaking this idea that by participating in the meal, he would also be participating in the worship of gods. So this is not merely some moral quibble that these weaker brothers are having. For these weaker brothers and sisters to eat meat offered to idols would be to turn their backs on the Lord who bought them. It would, it would be plunging themselves back into idolatry. How could they even think about doing such a thing? Paul says his conscience becomes defiled, contaminated, or polluted. Now notice, though, this isn't simply taking offense at a certain action. Sometimes we might think that um, by carrying out our liberties, we can't do it in such a way that someone is offended. But these are not proud Pharisees that we're talking about who are offended that these stronger brothers are practicing these things or eating this meat sacrificed to idols. We should never allow Pharisees to limit our freedom in Christ, but we must limit ourselves for those who are weaker in faith and understanding. Paul again affirms that we're neither more spiritual nor less spiritual if we eat or if we don't eat. It doesn't have to do with the actual food. Therefore, in matters indifferent, we must deal with one another in love. There's a classic passage uh, on Christian liberty also in Romans 14. Paul says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. But who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. The problem comes when we use our liberty in such a way that it trips up our brothers or sisters in Christ. Paul gives an example of exactly what this looks like. Let's say a brother or sister saw you in one of those temples, those idol temples. 
Won't he be strengthened to eat as well against his conscience? And the Corinthians, the stronger brothers, might say, yeah, that means he's gained knowledge and freedom just like we have. He'll be strong like we will be. But that's not quite right. He has gained the freedom to do it, but not the knowledge for him to do it with a free conscience. He's gained the freedom to do it, but not the knowledge. In other words, for him, it's still turning his back on the Lord, but he has rebelled against his conscience in this. He has acted in contradiction to his conscience. That brother isn't actually freed by your knowledge. Rather, he's destroyed by your so-called knowledge. And this, Paul says, is a person for whom Christ died. And that's why Paul warns them in chapter 10 to not participate in idols. But do you see why pursuing knowledge without love is so harmful to the body? Exercising your freedom without concern for your brothers doesn't build up the body. It tears the body down. It destroys the body. And by sinning against your brothers in this way, Paul says, you are sinning against Christ. You're sinning against Jesus Christ when you sin against your brothers in this way. So what what should they do then? What should we do when we are confronted with this desire to carry out our liberties, but we also recognize that a flaunting of our liberties, our practice of certain liberties in certain ways would harm our brothers and sisters in Christ. Look at Paul's conclusion. This is the way of love that Paul would pursue if he was in that situation. Therefore, if meat causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Wow. That is what love looks like for the brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul is willing to forsake this liberty that he has. Eating meat? Would, it, would any of us say that? I will give this up. This enjoyable pleasure. I will give this freedom up. Because it might make you fall. It might destroy you, brother. That is the concern that Paul has for his brothers and sisters in Christ. He was perfectly willing to lay down his rights, his legitimate freedoms, so as to not make his brothers or sisters stumble. You know, the one who is proud says, What? Am I my brother's keeper? Am I really responsible for what he does? Am I responsible that he is harmed by his ignorance, by his lack of knowledge? But the brother who has love says, We are in this together. We are debtors to one another. I love the song, I Need Thee Every Hour. It reminds us of our greatest need in all of life. Our need for God. Our need for Christ every single hour of every single day. More than anything else in all the world. And yet we must not succumb to the individualistic impulse of our culture. For God has made us a part of his family. He has given us brothers and sisters. He has given us a church. He has placed us in a church. And we need one another. We need to take responsibility for one another. We need to be as brothers in war together. Having each other's backs taking responsibility for the maturity of one another, 
recognizing that my actions have an impact on you, not thinking I can just exercise my liberties in however I want to, but recognizing the needs of others and laying down our own rights so that we might be built up together in love for one another. And this will happen only as God fills us with His Spirit, as He enables us to carry out the fruit of the Spirit, loving one another, investing one another. We cannot take a passive approach to one another's lives. Rather, we have to be actively involved, seeking one another out and taking responsibility for one another. Let us pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that uh, you would do this work in us. Um, it's so easy for us to, to take an pr- active approach to our relationships, to take, an active, to take a passive approach to life and discipleship. So easy to neglect taking initiative with one another. But I pray that you would help us to take 1 Corinthians chapter 8 to heart, that we would recognize the deep responsibilities we have for one another to be built up, that we don't destroy one another, but that we depend upon one another, that we consider one another, that we consider one another out of love. In your word, Paul says that the greatest of these is love. And so above knowledge, above activity, above any other thing, we pray that we, Christ Church Rollsville, will be characterized by our love for God and our love for one another. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.